When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. I really don't know how this plays out. We also don't know a ton about this, you know, virus. So there's so many open questions. I just have a really hard time making predictions because I don't know how the outbreak's going to change. Welcome to episode eight of Coronapod. I'm Benjamin Thompson, once more in the South London basement, and I'm joined, as always, by Noah Baker and Amy Maxman. Uh, Noah and Amy, how are you both doing today? I'm doing good. Yeah, I've spent an awful lot of time in my little pillow fort today because I've been recording various bits of voiceovers for films and a few other things. So it's been quite a comforting, if not warm day for me. Yes, the the duvet fort does tend to uh, to raise the temperature. I'm actually in shorts right now, just to uh, paint some pictures with words. All three of us are able to isolate, and I think we have been doing so for the duration we've been re- recording this show, but it's not necessarily the case for everyone and all populations and Amy something you've been looking at this week are groups who who maybe can't help but congregate and the efforts that people are putting in place to try and protect them from COVID-19. Right so we live uh, in a way we're quite privileged to be able to isolate and do our podcasts from home and I think a real lack of attention has been put on people who can't isolate who either have to go to essential jobs that are quite dense or they live in shared places these are Um, you know, like nursing homes or homeless shelters. So we know for a fact that the biggest outbreaks in the U.S. have been in these sort of places, in nursing homes, they've been in meatpacking plants, they've been in jails, anywhere where people don't have the agency to just say, I'm going to go and keep to myself or just, you know, be in a bubble with my family. That's a really dangerous situation for those people. But one of the things that you've been looking at is how that could also fit into the wider public health situation for everyone, because it's not just a horrible situation for those people to be in. There may be broader impacts of this. Yeah, exactly. I think the truth is these are very vulnerable places. So it's terrible for the people who are there or who work in these places. And it also means, you know, in as much as we are one society or one country or one world, we can't get rid of the outbreak by letting these things happen. I think a strong example is Singapore. They did so beautifully in their response. They really stomped it out. But then they realized they had an explosion of cases among migratory workers who were in extremely crowded dormitories with something like 12 beds per room. When you overlook these places, it's bad for everyone. 
In particular, you've been looking at researchers and medics working with homeless populations in the US. What sort of numbers are we maybe talking in terms of disease burden in this population? So not a ton is known about what's going on in homeless populations because there's been a huge lack of testing. You know, I started getting interested in this because I've been reporting on testing and a number of the groups I've been talking with at the University of Washington, at University of California, Berkeley, University of California, San Francisco, Boston University, a lot of them, what they've been doing with, they have this enormous testing capacity that a lot of hospitals, you know, don't really want. But they've been now working with communities to see, okay, how else can their tests be used? And what they're finding, I think the overall look is just, it's there and there's a lot of cases. And so often the testing criteria right now in many places is that only people with symptoms are tested. So a homeless shelter might screen everybody's temperature. And then if somebody has a fever, then they get a COVID test. Well, what these groups are finding is that the number of people who are asymptomatic, and let me go back to that in a second is really high, more than half of the people. In one shelter in Boston, 147 people tested positive. Only one of them had a fever and a low number, I think something like 8% of them had a cough, which means just screening by taking people's temperatures and assuming you're going to catch it like that is going to be way too slow. By the time that happens, it's out of hand before you've even noticed it. I said, let's come back to the part about asymptomatic because a slight caveat there is that Anybody who works with the homeless has told me that there's such a high baseline of health problems. So a lot of people have a cough anyways. So it's kind of hard to say completely asymptomatic because it's more that it's just also hard to distinguish it from normally just feeling bad. And I guess this kind of problem of asymptomatic spread, you know, that exists in the whole population, but it's amplified so much by these close living quarters of these people. And that's what really makes the difference here. Exactly. So the transmission dynamics that you're going to get in a group setting, any group setting, you know, whether that's a jail or a nursing home or a homeless shelter or any place where there's dense conditions, you're going to get a higher rate of spread. Out of interest, you know, there's an awful lot of modelling that's been done about how the virus might spread among communities. Has there been much epidemiological work done that takes into account these sort of close living quarters or people that live in these ways? It's a great question. You know, even before the outbreak began, one of the researchers I've talked to before, Helen Chu at the University of Washington, she had actually started a study to look at how influenza moves through homeless communities, because that was exactly her thought. We need to model the spread of this and also think about what, what do we do to stop that spread? If we can understand the transmission dynamics, then we can stop, say, an influenza-like pandemic. And then this actual pandemic hit, which isn't the flu, but um, is also very transmissible. So what she's trying to do and what other researchers I've talked to are trying to do is to do exactly that, to model the spread of how this moves so that you can figure out how often do you have to screen people, how many people have to be screened, and also if they could get data on the speed of transmission in different settings. To be clear, in the U.S., people who are homeless have different situations. There's sort of shelters that might house people who are recently out of jail. There's shelters where people who are homeless could come in and out. In California, 70% of the homeless are unsheltered. So they actually sleep in what we call tent cities or encampments. And then now in the U.S., a lot of states have begun trying to move some homeless people into big stadiums where they have cots spaced out six feet apart. There's also been moves to, you know, distribute face masks. But this is all done sort of without much evidence about what has an impact. I mean, are people safer outdoors or are they safer indoors? And 
you know, for the face mask, I talked to one researcher who she's studying transmission dynamics in nursing homes. A lot of the residents in these nursing homes, just they just can't really wear face masks well. She was sort of describing how, you know, a man who has dementia is wandering around, face mask is kind of around his neck, it has coffee stains on it. And she just thought some of the things that she's learning might be similar to in to homeless shelters. It sounds great to say everybody should wear a face mask, but you and I both know we're talking about how we don't want to go hiking with a face mask. Now imagine if that's your everyday life and you already have these huge concerns over your head, like having no home. Face mask is just not going to be your number one priority. So there's a lot of a lot to be said about trying to back up the recommendations with real evidence. You talk about care homes there, and, and certainly here in the UK, there's been a lot of talk about a lack of access to, to face masks and personal protective gear. Are resources an issue in efforts to try and stop this virus among the communities you've been looking at? Yeah, they're a huge issue. So number one, we know that we have a testing shortage. That is very real. But some of the researchers I talked to, even when they have the tests, a pushback that they're hearing from counties and states is that They don't really want to survey lots of people in, say, a homeless shelter because there's a lack of resources for what to do if they do test positive. So if you have somebody who tests positive, now they don't have a home, so you can't isolate them. They don't have health insurance, so getting them medical care is an issue. Maybe you have to also provide food or some sort of income. Same thing with people who are of low socioeconomic status. If you're telling them to not go into work, they need to have some sort of income to support that. I guess in a world where there is a limited number of tests, for whatever reason that may be, because of these increased transmission dynamics of people living in close quarters for these various reasons, is there an argument to be made that public health response should focus more on those people with its limited testing resource than it should on others because they have this increased transmission dynamic? They could be acting almost as a reservoir that could cause a problem further down the line. Is is a test on someone living in close quarters more valuable than a test on someone else, which is a horrible thing to say, because of course, the test is valuable for everyone. I think there's a real case to be made. And I think this is exactly the kind of thing that could use research. You know, I get emails from the various health departments in California saying, okay, now we have all these tests, anybody can get tested, enter in your zip code, you'll find a testing spot nearby. I think they are prioritizing people with symptoms. But yeah, I feel like there should be some real thought here about where we're going to get the most bang for our buck. Certainly, people need tests. That's, that's true. But you know, testing somebody like me who, let's say, you know, I don't have any real symptoms that I just want to test, certainly those resources could be better spent. And I, I'd like to see a very thorough kind of assessment about how this works. I spoke yesterday to the head of NIDA, the, the National Institute on Drug Abuse in the USA, Nora Volkov. Um, you'll hear more from that interview later in the show. But one thing that she raised to me, which she was very, very concerned about, is that people that have substance use disorders, people that suffer from addictions, are being somewhat overlooked at the moment. And there is very little data about how people that are, for example, addicted to methamphetamine might have a different risk or a different transmission dynamic um, when it comes to COVID-19. And at the moment, they're just desperate for data. So they're putting out calls, asking for more data from all of their grantees to study this because they can't model it until they know more about what's happening. But the concerns are very much there. Hmm. Yeah. Has anyone given you any any thoughts on long-term strategies? And I only say, because here in, in London... Uh, a lot of hotels, which of course aren't being used by paid customers, are being used to shelter and to, and to house people who are homeless. But of course, as we talked about 
the other day, you know, people are looking to reopen the economy and, and these hotels will eventually start reopening as hotels. And many of these people will see themselves potentially back on the street. And then we're back to maybe square one in terms of disease transmission and so forth. What have people been telling you about ways that they could try and mitigate that? Yeah, as far as solutions goes, the same thing is happening here. Counties are buying or renting out hotels and motels or even dorms they're talking about to house the homeless. And I think that's a great move. It's still not as much as we need. And there's still a lot that are empty. So I think before thinking about what do we do when everybody's back, I just think a lot of the people I'm talking to are just saying, let's just freaking use these places, worry about what happens when everybody has to go back later. I've seen quite a few news reports of cities in the UK that have no people sleeping rough anymore. They have found ways to house the rough sleeping population in Bristol, for example, which for me made me feel warm and happy that that was happening and that there was a method that was found to do that. However, my concern is, well, they can do it right now because hotels are empty. But what happens when this all goes away? You're like, it's not like homelessness has been fixed, which is kind of the thing that makes me feel warm. You know, oh, now we can find a way to fix this, whereas previously we couldn't, which is actually maybe kind of depressing. No, it, it is an interesting point. And uh, I forgot to mention that. Thanks. You know, somebody I was speaking to who works with the homeless regularly, she was like, you know, maybe this shows like we can actually do stuff here. It doesn't necessarily have to be in hotels, but there's other vacant buildings and vacant homes. So she's saying this shows we can actually give people temporary places to live. And they're also trying things like telemedicine and new ways to get medical care to people. So, right, you know, this kind of shows if there's a will, there's a way to do this. We just happened to need it. We needed a pandemic to show that it's really important. What a, again, mixture of feelings about the phrase we needed a pandemic to show this is important. (laughs) I prefer no pandemic. I I think I agree with you. I think we all prefer no pandemic. (laughs) I mean, you've you've spoken to researchers on the ground who are working with homeless populations, for example. Are we able to draw parallels with with other groups who are unable to avoid congregating, you know, like in, in prisons, for example? Yeah, I mean, the data we do have from the US is that prisons have been a huge source of outbreaks. It's one of the top three sources of outbreaks. The CDC put out a report yesterday about prisons. I think what was kind of shocking to me is the lack of data they have. A number of jurisdictions, I think 30% of jurisdictions in the US don't report their prison data. But okay, all of those caveats aside, we know that there's about 5,000 infections among detained people, and then another almost 3,000 among staff who work in prisons, and 88 deaths of incarcerated people, along with 15 deaths of staff members. So that's collected from the U.S., but it's certainly an underestimate for the reasons that I said. So what prisons are trying to do here is a, a lot of prisons are letting inmates out early, and they say it's people who are convicted of nonviolent crimes. But I spoke to one person who runs, they call them transition homes for people who are out of prison and who have to now get on their feet again. And so they help them find jobs and also give them a place to live in the meantime, because a lot of times they don't have somewhere to go. He's having to turn them away because the prisons here aren't testing people before they release them. And in addition, he doesn't have the resources or no ability to test people unless they have these, you know, unless they have, say, a fever, which we know is not a very good way to detect COVID. So he's afraid to let them in because it could infect his whole group. 
It's such a difficult situation. I feel like different social groups all have so many specific things that need to be thought about that affect them in different ways. And it's, I mean, it's difficult for someone like an epidemiologist to capture all of that information, but it's really necessary because they could be really significant. Yeah, I think, you know, and I think the researchers I've talked to, what they really want to do is make evidence-based policies. You know, even if it's, as I think, you know, one researcher, Maria Kushel at UCSF, the way she put it to me is like, we just at least need to figure out the best of the bad choices. So even if we don't, the ideal choice is everybody gets their own home um, or their own apartment. Now, if we don't have that, what is the best choice we can make? And, and another researcher pointed out to me that we might see similar things, you know, very different, but similar in that, you know, as, as the economy opens up, a lot of schools want to open up in September. Uh, university colleges, they definitely want to start working again. Researchers at labs want to get back in their lab and do work. So what he was pointing out is we also need a similar kind of system for how often do we screen? uh, How often do we test? How do we make this less deadly when people start getting back together? Now, what if the dorms fill up again? There needs to be some kind of evidence-based system for stopping the spread of COVID within those groups. Absolutely. I know here in the UK, so much of how any kind of large scale, um, centrally controlled response to anything is based around a postcode. It's sort of part of our system. You need to have an address in order to be able to access everything. Like even in my life, I mentioned on the podcast last week that I live on a narrowboat. But that means that in London, I have no fixed address. And so I have no postal code. And so I can't register to doctors. They won't let me because the whole system is based around a postal code. And it's the same for people that have no fixed address in London because they are homeless, for example. Oh, that's interesting. You know, for this story, I had actually reached out. Doctors Without Borders is working with the NHS to, I think, have homeless clinics. But I I wasn't able to find out much more about how they're working more broadly. I think it might just be on the clinical side of it. And don't get me wrong, we do have a social care system, which does, you know, have ways to get around this. But it's still hard when you want a big global response to try to get around these sorts of problems. For sure. Well, let's bring it home again, team. Then, I mean, let's, let's talk about good things this week. And uh, and I think I think it's probably my turn to go first this time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and my good thing this week is uh, is is a personal one. I have to say. Um, and here we are in what is it, week eight or nine of lockdown. And my uh, my darling wife said to me, "Let's go on a date. Where do you want to go?" To which I obviously looked at her quizzically, like somewhere else in the flat. And she said, "No, anywhere you want. Where do you want to go?" And so we spent the evening going to the Taj Mahal and we went to the Colosseum in Rome <sighs> and we went to the Louvre and the, the Rijksmuseum uh, in Amsterdam has an amazing app where you can have a little look around some of the art there and it was it was nice to spend an evening with some sort of aesthetic beauty as well and and you know looking at uh, Rembrandt's The Night Watch on an iPad mini that's the way to look at that painting right I mean it's one of the greatest paintings of all time looking at it on a screen that's about three inches across is definitely the way to take it in but do you know what just just for a for a sweet couple of hours it was nice to to remember that there is a world outside of of the South London flat that's cute I love it and Amy how about you what, what have you got for us this week well I have to admit I secretly like enjoy dark humor. I just do. I, you know, I've reported Ebola a couple of places that I have heard some funny jokes. And I think somebody once told me, you know, during the Ebola outbreak, like, if we're not laughing, we're crying. So I got a text from a friend that I had met in Nigeria, and she texted me this new list of words to introduce to the Oxford English Dictionary. And it's funny. So I'll read a couple of them. Corona coaster, the ups and downs of your mood during the pandemic. Quarantinis. 
experimental <laughs> cocktails from random ingredient, whatever random ingredient you have left in the house. Oh, I, I have had a Corona teeny or two in the last few weeks. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I actually want to interrupt you because my one good thing is Corona teenies. Really? That is it. Because I have to say, I've been working an awful lot more than regularly this week. And <laughs> my Corona teeny at the end of my day has been amazing. And we've been having to get more and more creative, shall I say, with what goes into the Corona teeny because we've been running out of spirits. And I actually found a bottle of honey rum. It is very sweet. That's perfect. Uh, but it's uh, but it worked. It was delicious, and um, so I have a surprise Corona teeny every day at the end of the day, and it is bringing me joy. That is hilarious. That's super hilarious. Let's see if she has any other funny ones here. There's a whole bunch of them. Furlow Merlot, <laughs> which needs no explanation. Corona dose when you've overdosed from bad news from consuming too much media on the pandemic <laughs> the oh. elephant ready this is mean the elephant in the zoom <laughs> the issue during a video conferencing call that nobody mentions that one participant has dramatically put on weight goodness me that's also me you just keep you keep listing me <laughs> Have you noticed I don't use video for our calls? Uh... <laughs> oh, dear. Wonderful. Well, let's leave it at that then both. Um, Amy and Noah, thank you so much for joining me and, uh, and look forward to talking to you both next week for episode nine of Coronapod. Thank you. More from Amy next week. Up next now, Noah's back and he's been finding out how the pandemic has affected substance misuse treatments and research. Nora Volkov is the head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, or NIDA, in the USA. NIDA's mission is to develop interventions which can prevent and treat addiction and drug use disorders. But since the COVID-19 outbreak hit, the research they fund has been really significantly impacted. And Nora herself is deeply concerned about how the coronavirus could impact those with drug use disorders. I called her up to find out a bit more and started by asking her specifically about those concerns. Uh, yes, certainly. I mean, I think there are two components to it. One of them is the scientific component. I mean, we're a scientific agency. Uh, but the other side of it is the consequences that COVID has for people suffering the diseases that we're studying, the people that are out there right now living this, this sort of nightmare. Okay, so first off, how is the science being impacted, the, you know, the research projects that NIDA funds? Many of the laboratories have had to close down. Many of the clinical projects are right now on hold because they cannot recruit patients, because the hospital systems cannot accommodate for research. So from the perspective of research, this is slowing us down enormously. But even more urgent and tragic is the reality that people that are suffering from addictions and their families are having to struggle with COVID. Drugs, whether it's legal, like alcohol or tobacco smoking, or illegal, like cocaine, methamphetamine or heroin, produce marked damage to our body. And in particularly vulnerable are our lungs, and our heart, and our cardiovascular system, and our immune system, all of which are basically targets of COVID-19. And as a result of that, uh, there is an enormous concern that people that are addicted to these drugs, that are taking them regularly, at that greater risk of having much worse outcomes, much more adverse outcomes. 
the concerns are there? Are there people in NIDA or elsewhere that are trying to study that clinically at the moment? We are asking for urgent uh, submission of supplements among grantees that can start to look at this because the, the epidemic is too new for us to understand how uh, someone that has substance use disorders is responding to the COVID infection itself. The substance that has been studied the most is cigarette smoking. So we have several reports from China. There have been a couple of reports that have started to emerge from other countries. The data is very mixed. Overall, if you look at it, it does appear that people that had COVID that were smokers have higher mortality rates and worse outcomes. But then there there are some papers that are hinting at the possibility that the risk of infection may be lower among those that are smoking uh, cigarettes, perhaps because nicotine could have a preventive effect. And and that's an interesting theory that needs to be investigated. And And what about other drugs? Do you have any data on things like opioids? We have no data on opioids. The same thing with methamphetamine or cocaine. These are drugs that produce massive vasoconstriction. So we're specifically right now requesting researchers to put supplements to their current grants so that they can start to evaluate how COVID is affecting their patients. And we want this to emerge rapidly because there's an urgency to gain this knowledge so that we know how to treat it. And beyond the physiological impacts, there's also a real risk uh, to people that are currently undergoing treatment for substance use disorders. Trying to access that treatment is pretty tricky at the moment. As part of social distancing, um, the support systems that normally holds them together, helps them hold together, including syringe exchange programs, including group therapies like Alcoholic Anonymous, are basically no longer present. Also, the support systems that provide them with their therapy, for example, whether it is methadone, the methadone clinics are actually curtailing the number of patients that they can uh, see on a given day. These are structural factors that have changed the, the social systems that we rely on that are very important for all of us, but crucial for people that are Uh, fighting with a problem with substance use disorders and that are aiming to achieve or are in recovery. And indeed, we are getting reports uh, in treatment programs that patients that have been stable for a long time are relapsing. And there's one more potential risk which you have highlighted, which um, is really about the, the, the overlap between those with substance use disorders and other social factors. Tell me a bit more about that. When you take drugs... You actually undermine not just your social systems, but actually your standing in a society. And as a result of that, the likelihood of you becoming homeless is much greater. And also the likelihood to be engaged in the justice settings, whether it is homeless or you are in prison or jail, those are environments where infections actually can very rapidly disseminate. And right now around the world, epidemiologists are modelling the impacts of COVID-19. They're trying to find out more about the way the virus is spreading. Is there much of an understanding of how people with substance use disorders might fit into modelling like that? That type of modelling has been done for infectious diseases, including the substance-using population, um, most notable for HIV 
And the other one for which there has been a lot of modeling done is for hepatitis C. For both of these infectious diseases, um, drug use, um, most notable injection drug use, but not just limited at injection drug use, are very significant sources for fast dissemination of an epidemic. But what is it for uh, COVID in, in drug using population? The risk for infection is, to my knowledge, at this point, unknown, as it compares to that of, of other populations that are not taking drugs. A lot of scientists around the world are responding. A lot of agencies are responding to the outbreak and they're trying to do what they can. What is NIDA's priority right now and what's your priority in response to the COVID-19 outbreak? My priority is, first of all, to ensure that uh, evidence-based treatment and prevention uh, that relates to substance use disorder and its comorbidities are deployed and implemented and sustained. That's, That's the priority. How do you do that? We are all have to come up with solution in vivo, in life, but learning from it, evaluating the outcome so that then we can select which ones are the ones that lead to the best results is what science does. And that's where we're building this, hopefully through these supplements to grantees that we have across different setups. Nora Volkov there. If you'd like to find out more about her life and work, Nature published a profile on her a few weeks back. And I'll put a link to that and everything else we've talked about in today's show notes. That's it for episode eight of Coronapod. Don't forget you can reach out to us on Twitter at Nature Podcast or on email podcast at nature.com. There'll be a Corona free edition of the regular Nature Podcast on Wednesday and we'll be back with episode nine of Coronapod next Friday. Hope you can join us then. Until next time, I've been Benjamin Thompson. Stay safe. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.